Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we'll take a look at one of my favorite art forms, zines. We'll talk with Susie Kelly, who's been making zines for more than 20 years. She talks about how DIY publishing can connect people in unexpected ways. Maybe a kid in California finds an Appalachian zine and decides to move to Appalachia. (laughs) And West Virginia singer and songwriter John R. Miller brings us up to speed on his new album. A lot has changed in his life in the last few years. I think I stuck the landing a little bit, you know, as much a surprise to me as I'm sure it was to anybody else, but I, you know, still here, so that's good enough. (laughs) Also, there's a new edition of a guidebook that lists climbing routes in the New River Gorge. We'll talk with the climber who challenged the climbing community to rename racist and sexist route names, and one. I teared up because knowing that we made significant change, like, no other person will feel the pain that we felt. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we're hearing stories from creators across Appalachia and how they process their lives through their art. Everything from songwriting, to photography, to self-published zines. What are zines? Well, we'll get to that. But first, let's start with an update of a story we heard last fall. Back in October, we heard how West Virginia rock climbers were taking on racist, sexist, and other offensive route names in the New River Gorge. One of the people we interviewed was DJ Grant, a black climber who helped kickstart the effort to change the names. We were climbing at this route, this wall, and there was a route called Tigger. Yeah, it had another Tigger in the morgue and hard pipe hitting Tiggers, uh, which are both plays on the N-word. And like, I was really offended by it. And I was really taken. Like, it, it was the first time that I realized that something like a name could ruin my entire day. Like, I didn't want to go anywhere close to that wall. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to look at it. It was just like, it was so offensive and so hurtful. These offensive names were found throughout the gorge. I'm not going to say what they are. The routes and the pioneering climbers who made them are recorded in a two-volume guidebook called New River Rock, which contains about 3,000 rock climbing routes in the gorge and surrounding areas. Last year, DJ Grant and others asked the New River Alliance of Climbers to change some of those route names to get rid of racist and offensive language. Well, a new edition of the book hit shelves in late July. Reporter Zach Harold checked in with Grant on the latest. DJ, for those that might not have heard the first story, can you talk to us a little bit about the issues that arose in the New River Gorge climbing community last year? So last year, um, a group of climbers and myself were really upset about the names that were in the New River Guidebook. Some of the names were racist, misogynistic, homophobic, sexist, and just downright offensive. And so we reached out to NRAC, the New River Alliance of Climbers, to ask them if they could fix it. And they were mostly on board with helping us fix it. So once you had brought up this issue to them, a procedure was created to go about having these names changed. Can you describe what that process was? We reached out to the community. We asked the community, we usually asked the demographic that we thought would be offended by these names. 
And whenever consensus was drawn that, hey, these names were offensive, we brought it on the table. We reached out to the first ascensionists and asked them if they were willing to change the names. I remember you explaining that to me for the first story, how in the rock climbing community, it's traditionally been the first person to successfully climb a route, the first ascensionist in the lingo, uh, who's been allowed to name the routes. And it's so interesting to me that you guys went to them first, gave them first dibs at renaming these routes, because one, it preserves the legacy of these folks, and two, it allows them to right the wrongs that they created by naming these routes offensive things. So how did it go? Did the first ascensionists agree to change the names? Um, we got all the names we wanted to get changed, changed, yeah. It was a success. That is amazing. Um, because there are so many areas of our culture where, you know, a, a minority group of people says, this is offensive, this brings up bad things for me, and I don't like it. And so many times the other side is so entrenched in tradition or whatever that they just refuse to change. And here, even the people that were the old guard, you know, the people that were there in the beginning, they were willing to say, okay, I see what you mean. Let's move forward. They were more willing to help us when we explained that you're not racist. We understand that times have changed that you're, um, you're helping us, and your legacy will stay there. If you pick up the book, and, and if somebody's coming to this and they don't know any of this backstory, is there anything that would let them know the work that you and others there at NRAC put into removing these uh, offensive names? There is a excerpt in the book that says what we did and why we did it. It's just um, telling the next generation that, we had these hard conversations, so you didn't have to. We, we fought for change. Change wasn't a right. It was something that we fought for. It was something that we did for you. It was something that we did because we love you. Have there been other changes to the guidebook that makes it more inclusive? Yeah, that's the best part. Not only have, have the names been changed, but now there's more representation there's pictures of black and brown climbers, there's pictures of female climbers, there's pictures of not only white climbers, but Asian, black, brown, like all shapes and sizes on the walls. It's no longer a white man's book. It's everybody's book. It's everyone's sport. Have you got your copy yet? I have my copies, yes. What was that experience like flipping through for the first time? It honestly... The book was so light because it was free of so much hate, like no pain, no whatever. Like I teared up because knowing that we made significant change, like no other person will feel the pain that we felt. There are two volumes to the New River Climbing Guide. This was volume two. Are you guys working on volume one now? I assume there are names in that volume that also probably merit changing. Um, volume one, we have reached out to a lot of first ascensionists. A lot of the first ascensionists are on board with the name changes as well. Do you have any idea when the first edition might go back to press? It's going to be a while unless the public does a, a push for a new reprint. But let's not do that because it'll put a lot of pressure on us to do a lot of work. 
those tight deadlines are uh, are brutal. I understand. Well, DJ, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, and thank you so much for the work you and the rest of uh, NRAC are, are doing to make the Gorge a more uh, inclusive and, and welcoming place. On behalf of NRAC, thank you so much. That was DJ Grant, one of the rock climbers pushing to change offensive route names in West Virginia's New River Gorge. He was speaking with reporter Zach Harold. Last year, Grant told us he didn't think he'd ever be able to climb the offensively named routes, even if they were renamed. It'd be too painful. But Grant says he's actually climbed some of the renamed routes in recent months. He hopes future climbers of color will also fall in love with the new and never feel the pain of those old names. Singer and songwriter John R. Miller grew up in West Virginia's eastern panhandle in a small town called Hedgesville. He's gotten pretty well known here and has even performed on West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Mountain Stage a few times. Now, he's got a new album out. It's called Depreciated. This is his third album, and it's gained international attention. He's been featured in Spin Magazine and on official Spotify playlists like Emerging Americana and Fresh Folk. He moved to Nashville to further pursue his career, and it was during this transitional time he wrote most of the songs on Depreciated. But the mountain state is never far from his mind. I love West Virginia dearly. It's, uh, I'm, I'm always kind of trying to plot how to get back, you know. <laughs> Miller spoke with Caitlin Tan about the songs on his new album. They started with the song Shenandoah Shakedown, which is set in the Shenandoah Valley, where he grew up. There's a crack in the altar, pale light through the break. Like crooked teeth And I couldn't fault her Knowing what was at stake It feels like you're kind of telling the story of, of a romance or a love through the imagery of the Shenandoah. Can you kind of walk us through it a little bit? Yeah, um, the song is definitely framing the dissolution of a relationship through kind of a series of vignettes that were maybe a little uh, psychedelically influenced. Uh, for a little, yeah. um, and definitely spent a lot of my 20s just sort of hanging around there. And I think a lot of those memories sort of came came back to me as I was sort of processing um, that series of events. And I don't know, it's it's definitely sort of sort of hazy at this point. I think maybe I was just trying to get it down for myself and then it just sort of ended up on, on a record. Flights of temporal affection Pose in the vein Loose in the coil And if I could find a use The things I cannot help but do I might one day atone Did you anticipate this song being the biggest hit from the record or was it a surprise to you? Yeah, pretty pretty surprising actually. I kind of felt like maybe it wasn't I mean, I don't know anything about anything. I thought that maybe <laughs> that wouldn't that one wouldn't um necessarily be, you know, an immediately accessible sort of song. There's no chorus or anything, you know. It's it's feels kind of broken to me. I was definitely surprised that people seem to pick up on that one more so than a lot of the other ones, which is cool. I'm, I, I, I was pleasantly surprised by that. And the wolves are closing in The blood runs cold and thin And the moon shines bright as bone 
hills move like walls The river speaks in tongues And I am not alone So then with your most recent album, you shifted from being an independent artist to then being signed on by Concord, which is a pretty big music publishing company based in Nashville. First of all, congratulations. But was that a hard decision to make for you? Um, it, it definitely took some thought, you know. I'm in my mid-30s now, and I've been pretty DIY my, my whole life. I just saved up from touring to make the record and did it with some some close friends that I'd wanted to work with for a while. And, um, you know, once we were done with the record, they actually heard it somehow and, and contacted us. So another song from the album, Old Dance Floor, that one really stood out to me and I really loved it. And it kind of, on first listen, I heard almost this like crumbling of, of like a relationship or maybe just like a fling. Um, you say, I need something to hold on to. I swear I thought it was you. I did most of what you do, but it feels just like a sin. But then also on second listen, I also felt like there was a hint of kind of just generally needing a, a new start or a fresh break in life. Uh, walk me through that song. Yeah, that one that one definitely came around the time that I was moving. And I sort of, I guess, looking for a, a life preserver in some ways. By the time I moved, I was, I was kind of drinking a lot and had been on the road for a while and was really just kind of spinning wheels and kind of trying to look outside myself, maybe to other people for help, help me out or save me or whatever, you know, for lack of a better term. And <laughs> didn't really find that that was the way to go about it. That song definitely came from just trying to figure out what I was supposed to be doing or what I wanted to be doing and, and how I was going to go about that. Things that I had never really considered in the sort of drunken haze of my 20s, you know. It's last call at the bar, divine, spit in your beer, piss in your wine. Slip out the door and down the line. So between your um, last album in 2018 to then this album, a lot of it sounds like a lot of those kind of like life changes have happened and like changes in the direction you want to move forward. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, you know, I I I think I stuck the landing a little bit, you know, as <laughs> uh, as much as a surprise to me as I'm sure it was to anybody else, but I, I you know, still here. Uh, so that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's talk about Faustina. Um, another pretty big hit. I was just looking on Spotify and it has nearly half a million streams. The name is really clever. And just in case any of our listeners don't know, the name comes from a Polish Roman Catholic nun and mystic, St. Faustina. Tell us a little bit about this song. 
I feel like the song may have been poorly named because it, it, it didn't end up being about that saint so much as about, um, you know, kind of traveling. And, and it's sort of a, a rumination on addiction, really. Okay, so I sort of grew up in a Catholic household. That was definitely something that I sort of got out of pretty early in life, but I was always kind of fascinated by different religions and, you know, so-called mystics within different religions and and, uh, people who had had what I would consider to be maybe psychedelic experiences that weren't chemically induced, you know, things that someone may consider a a bona fide um, spiritual experience. And and, uh, I thought that her story was really, really fascinating to me. Um, But the song, uh, it... It sort of just dovetailed with that kind of kind of quitting drinking and, and searching for for some kind of common thread. I've had friends and I've let my friends down looking for my heart and the lost and found bare hands tried to stop the rain from pouring. I think I wrote that song after I had stopped drinking for you know, just a few days, and I was still kind of going through some withdrawal stuff. It's hard to it's hard to kind of put into conversational words, but. <laughs> Pray in Saint Faustina, please let me go out in style. I'll never know how far down it goes till the devil. Were you nervous at all with getting sober for that time? Like, would you still be able to write songs? Uh, yeah, I, I think I had just kind of written in that mode for so long that I was ready for it to either dry up, um, no pun intended, or, uh, <laughs> you know, find some new perspective. It's, uh, that was just a thing that really needed to happen. And, um, I don't know if I'd, I don't know if I'd be here if if it didn't, and uh, I'm I'm definitely writing from a place of much much more clarity these days. Well, John, anything you want to say to any West Virginians back home? <laughs> well, I uh, I miss you, and I and I and I'm looking forward to seeing my friends and family real soon. Well, John, thank you for talking today. Hey, thanks for having me, Caitlin. I appreciate it. I thought I was a traveler I was only a little unspooled I come back home In the second half of our show, we'll hear about the vibrant world of zines. Self-made magazines filled with art and stories you'll never see or read anywhere else. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. My own farm I was waiting for a reason to drop in and sound the alarm. I read tomes of ancient secrets. 
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Near the Tennessee-Virginia border, you'll find Appalachia's Tri-Cities, Bristol, Kingsport, and Johnson City, Tennessee. The biggest of the three is Johnson City, which is home to nearly 70,000 people. It's a cultural hub, with East Tennessee State University and a thriving art scene. It's also home to the Johnson City Zine Fest. A zine, in essence, is a self-published magazine. A zine can be big and glossy but it's a lot more likely to be produced by an individual person, often handwritten and made on a photocopier, with the paper folded and stapled. Artist and designer Susie Kelly has been making zines for more than half her lifetime. I met her when she was still producing her first zine, Twig Mama, out of a tiny community at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains. She eventually moved to Florida, where she went to a couple of zine fests and got all fired up again. So when she moved to Johnson City several years ago... She asked, why not have a zine fest here, too? There was a coffee shop downtown called The Willow Tree that I really loved. So I went to Terry at the coffee shop and said, hey, I have this idea. I know it sounds a little weird. You might not know what it means, but here's, here's what I'm thinking. And I think I brought a few zines to show her. And she was like, well, I don't know what this is, but I trust you. And yeah, we can do that. And years later, she said to me one day that it was one of her favorite events that she held at the at the coffee house. Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of folks from Asheville come up and, uh, you know, vend with their zines and some folks from Chattanooga, um, Boone, um, and of course, Johnson City and areas around here. That's like Appalachian zines, though. Yeah. So, but it's what, not limited to that. Yeah. I wouldn't say that it's limited to that. So what was the vibe like? I mean, the first one was really tiny. There were only maybe 10 to 12 people doing tables. Well, this is when I pulled this is one of the first ones I pulled this morning and it's the Willow Tree employees. So everyone who worked at the Willow Tree picked a page and did their own their own artwork or a little comic, painting. Here's a recipe for dill pickles. Yeah, what, what's the, can you read the title, read the cover? It says, Follow Me to the Willow Tree, Collections from the Dream Keepers, Volume 1. Susie Kelly spent her youth in upstate New York, in a rural community not all too different from places in Appalachia. She had just moved away from home to spend a summer in Northampton, Massachusetts, when she was given a copy of Comet Bus. It's a lot of people's first scene. It was mine, too. Comibus has been produced since the early 80s. It documents stories from the San Francisco Bay punk subculture through handwritten diaries and artwork. It fell into the hands of readers like Susie, all the way on the other side of the country. So you're looking at basically, it's, I would describe it as what, like an 8.5 by 11, mimeographed, folded over and stapled. Yep. Publicate. How many pages are in that? Let's see. 45, 50 maybe? It's pretty big. How did you find that? 
a friend gave it to me, but I can't remember his name. I think his name was Dave. And I had no idea what zines were. And it was kind of magical to me because I don't know if I had ever been in any bookstores with any. I hadn't seen anyone exchange them. So it was kind of this, this new thing. Um, just a summer in Northampton, hanging out. And that's when I decided to sort of document my experiences in Northampton for that summer. And that's when I created my first zine. So immediately after I found one, I was like, I have to try this. You were drawing by then, right? You'd, you'd been drawing like growing up. Yeah, much, I, right? I was drawing since I was very little. And my dad worked for Kodak, so I was really into photography for that reason. The freezer was always full of film, so I was always taking photographs. And um, I really started to pull my photographs and art together for some of these early zines that I was making. The first zine Susie made was called Twig Mama. She describes it as a perzine, or personal zine. It was essentially a diary, a way to process her move away from home. I would say that this is this was my like first big adventure as like a young adult where I was headed off to this town that I knew very little about. I didn't have a lot of friends there. I just needed to get out of my hometown and sort of experience something new. So a lot of these stories in here are stories of this town that I'm exploring. Um, I interview the neighbors next door. Um, sorry about the pody. I make a little comic about a job I had cleaning horse stalls at a local farm, um, best swimming spots. So the cover is a photocopied uh, picture of my face. I actually put my face on the photocopier to do this one. Um, I'm not sure how safe that is to look into those <laughs> lights. Well, but It's also your hand. Yeah, my hand rolls over onto the front from the, the back panel. But these are crazy to look at now because it's so different from what I've done the past, you know, 10 years. And I... I don't have a lot of my sketchbooks from that time period, but I do have these original zines, which is kind of cool. Susie made six issues of Twig Mama, including several in Ferrum, Virginia, on the eastern edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains. About eight years ago, she moved to Sarasota, Florida, and went to Zine Fest in Tampa and St. Petersburg. There, she met whole communities of zine makers who were pushing the form in different directions. She got inspired to start a new zine called Girls and Thieves, she describes it as an art book, and it showcases Susie's talents as a professional designer. What is it about the medium that grabs people, you think? I think it has a lot to do with sort of the boom of the internet and like everyone getting a blog and everyone getting an Instagram, everyone having their Facebook. And it's like a nice little break from that world, going back to like analog work and not having the pressure of how many likes or um, how many views, how many comments. You get to just have this like almost childlike reaction where you're just gonna create something and not care what anyone thinks, you know? <laughs> and I think that's my favorite part about zines. But at least they have these lives that are like beyond you that we might not even know about. Like maybe a uh, a kid in California finds an Appalachian zine and decides to move to Appalachia, you know, or vice versa, you know? Yeah. Um, you may never know the path that, that zine has after it leaves your hands. 
Last year, because of the pandemic, the Johnson City Zine Fest had to be canceled, and the Willow Tree Coffee House closed down. This year, Susie worked with a professor at East Tennessee State University to line up a new venue and reschedule the Zine Fest, but the resurgence of COVID-19 caused them to cancel again. Susie says she'll keep making zines either way. To learn more about zines and how to make them, go to our website, wvpublic.org. The Edward R. Murrow Awards for Journalism were announced last month. Our team here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting picked up two first-place awards, including for a story that our producer Roxy Todd reported about the plight of small farmers in West Virginia, and an episode us and them produced about grandparents raising grandchildren. We've posted these stories on our website if you'd like to listen back, wvpublic.org. And we're excited to work with other journalists who also picked up Murrow Awards, including reporter Sandy Hausman of WVTF Radio IQ, my home station here in Appalachian, Virginia. Her story won first place in the hard news category. It's about one man's struggle to gain freedom. Roger Fentress spent 24 years in prison since he was 16 years old for a murder he said he didn't commit. Six years ago, another man confessed to the crime But Virginia's governor ignored a petition for pardon from Fentress until Hausman reported on his case. One day later, the state announced it would free 40-year-old Fentress. Here's the story of what happened next. It originally aired last July. With the help of UVA's Innocence Project, Roger Fentress asked for a pardon in 2016. Last Wednesday, the answer came when a prison guard told him to pack his things. I'm like, what you talking about? He said, you going home. You say what? <laughs> Beg your pardon? <laughs> you going home. They want you to leave right now. Immediately, you're leaving today. <laughs> Supporters rushed to the Augusta Correctional Center to meet Fentress in the parking lot. 5'10", 240 pounds, dressed in khaki prison garb, white sneakers, and thick brown glasses. He walked into the sunlight and embraced his lawyers. One had come with a black Labrador retriever. Fentress knelt down to pat the dog, which in turn began licking his face. My first kiss. Then it was on to a series of reunions. I got the opportunity to meet my beautiful niece and my nephew. I had the opportunity to sleep in the bed, be surrounded by so much love, my family. The next day, he and his brother toured the Richmond neighborhood where they grew up. Today, we went to the 7-Eleven on Jefferson Davis and Harwood and got Slurpees, right? And it's the same store that we used to buy candy from, Penny Candies and Mary Jane's and all, Fireballs and Tutti Frutti's. He was disappointed to find that his favorite gum was no longer available. Apparently, nobody likes Big Red chewing gum anymore. But I'm like, cinnamon is, what are you tripping? It's hot, it's delicious. they like, they got bubble gum that tastes like birthday cake. <laughs> what we want this for. <laughs> he was excited to get a cell phone and took pleasure in calling his lawyers one by one. I was in the shoe store and I called Deirdre like, man, I'm in the shoe store. And then, night after night, he attended parties hosted by friends and family. 
In Charlottesville, the legal team introduced him to fresh tuna and greens he had heard of, but never actually tasted. I used to love watching PBS and the cooking shows. <laughs> Arugula. <laughs> Just make sure it got some arugula in it. And for dessert, there was a bag of fresh cherries. But Fentress was baffled by a Ziploc bag. I was defeated by cherries. I'm like, damn, I got a GED. I took my first class of English 111. I'm not mentally challenged. I should be able to do this. You know, but I couldn't get into the cherries. On Monday, he reported to a probation officer, something he'll have to do regularly for the next three years. Under the terms of his conditional pardon, he can't drink alcohol and he's not allowed to sue the state or police for wrongful arrest, conviction, and imprisonment. He's not sure what he'll do next. He's a skilled barber and a gifted portrait artist, but his mission in the years to come is to take care of his mother, become fluent in Spanish, and help others who were wrongfully convicted. I saw what it is that I have to fight for. There's a lot of injustices going on, and there's so much that we have to advocate and stand for, so we got a lot of work to do. But first, one other small pleasure denied him for 24 years. I want to take a bath, right? I want a loofah. I want to sit in bath sauce. I want to fizzle. The Innocence Project says it will petition the governor for an absolute pardon. If that's granted, Fentress would not have a felony on his record and would no longer require supervision. In Charlottesville, I'm Sandy Hausman. Hausman won a National Murrow Award for that story, which originally aired last summer. We live in an era of plenty, and yet a lot of people still have trouble accessing or affording fresh, healthy food. Next, we're heading up Interstate 81 to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank uses donations to provide meals for people living with food insecurity. The people who deliver those meals try their best to connect those in need with other kinds of support. And they say food outreach is working, but there are limits to what it can accomplish without broader support for people living in poverty. Transforming Health's Brett Schultes reports. It's July in Harrisburg, and the parking lot at St. Francis of Assisi's soup kitchen radiates heat from the midday sun. Kirk Hallett stands at the door of the building, offering a meal to anyone who shows up. And they put together this menu, which is, that's chicken, rice, beans, and broccoli. And they cook it up, and then they put it in these little containers, and they bring it upstairs and hand them out. So all of this food comes from the food bank. Hallett started volunteering at St. Francis more than 20 years ago, and it changed him. He left his job selling construction equipment and formed a nonprofit called the Joshua Group that aims to help children succeed in school. Hallett points out that just over half of students graduate from Harrisburg High School. So we uh, raise money for these kids to go to private school. So uh, they go to a variety of different private schools in the city. And then as, as exchange for that, they have to come to our after-school programs and our summer programs. Hallett wants to help children grow up to be adults who can take care of themselves and their own children. But he says in many cases, the best he can do is offer meals to people in situations he hopes the kids he's trying to help never encounter. You take care. After handing out food for an hour, Hallett packs his old pickup truck with trays of meals, and we get inside. Hallett explains COVID-19 changed his approach. They had to close down the dining hall, food wasn't getting to people, and that's when he came up with this route around Allison Hill. 
we drop off about 20 meals at a house where military veterans live. Then we head to a street corner where people gather. How you doing today? How are you? Doing good. This man is talking about how the police recently kicked him and others out of an encampment near City Hall where they got help from a nearby church. Since then, they've been on the move. We drive a mile or so to where about 20 people live in tents or under tarps under the Mulberry Street Bridge. A man named Pete Sullenberger thanks Hallett. It's really appreciated. Yeah. I mean, the, the people that come by here and drop off food and, and drinks and stuff, especially the drinks, you know what I mean, with it being so hot. Another man named Willard says some people criticize Hallett for delivering meals to people. They was trying to run him out of downtown there. They wanted him to stop feeding them. That's crazy. Hallett says Willard's right. He has faced some criticism, but he ignores it. He says his Christian faith is what guides his volunteer work. As we continue on his route, Hallett notes his food delivery mission also allows him to get help to people who might not have any contact with people like him otherwise. We pull into a parking lot next to a patch of woods, and when a man named Bobby comes out from the trees, Hallett's words are proven to be true. Bobby says he and two women, Linda and Michelle, all in their 50s and 60s, have been living in the woods for about 13 years. Linda, she's a man. Linda's 67 years old, right? Yeah, she's 60. Bobby confesses he's worried Linda might be suffering from something like Alzheimer's disease or dementia. I worry about her. Yeah. Sometimes she comes out and she forgets where she's going or whatever. And I'm like, Linda, are you all right? You know? She's like, Bobby, just come over, make me help me get into my tank. So I would do that. I would do that. I'd walk her over, get her back into her tank and stuff. I don't know what to say, Kirk. I really don't. Hallett explains to Bobby that a woman who sometimes delivers food with him can help get Linda connected with health care services. Afterwards, Hallett says he had no idea about Linda, but this kind of thing happens all the time when he's out delivering food. Later that evening at the Mulberry Street homeless encampment, I run into Aisha Mobley, a social worker with Christian Churches United. She's helping a young man move his belongings from the homeless encampment near City Hall, the one police told people to leave, to this location. So then he found another place to try to cop a squat, and he got served an order there as well. So I saw him today, we talked, and he said, I got to move, they gave me an order. So I went and got the big van to help him move. Mobley was a social worker for the Harrisburg School District for 12 years. She says most of the people under the bridge live with behavioral or physical disabilities. Mental health and physical health. So back issues, there's veterans um, out here. We try to get them out, you know, there's veterans resources that try to get them moving pretty quickly. As yet another train goes by, Mobley passes out food to people. And she says providing food is a great way to build trust and get to know someone who might qualify for additional services. Sandwich, muffins. We do like sandwiches and muffins. Not that cookie that fell, but this cookie's good. It didn't fall out. Carrots. No, no carrots. Thank you. You're good. Thank you. You're so welcome. 
Aisha Mobley says she's moved by her spiritual calling and her compassion for others and warns against looking for any one easy answer. But like Kirk Hallett, she says she draws a line connecting failure to invest in public health and education, especially for children, and the rise in food insecurity and homelessness. Because if you notice the things where, where money goes, it doesn't go to the schools as much as it should, right? For Mobley, there are lessons to learn from the success of the food outreach program. She knows that she and others are making a difference and hopes to see more resources so that people in need can plan for a future beyond where they're going to get their next meal. In Harrisburg, I'm Brett Schultes. Asheville, North Carolina is known for its vibrant music scene. It's a destination for touring musicians, but it's home to a thriving local scene, too anchored by record stores, small venues, and house shows. The Smoky Mountain Sirens were formed by three women who'd played in multiple Asheville bands and decided to try something new. Blue Ridge Mountain Radio's Matt Pikin has their story. We're the Smoky Mountain Sirens from right here in Asheville. Hear the sirens, hear the unknown, hear the masking in your dismay. Hear the sirens, hear the unknown, last thing you say is unknown. The three women of the Smoky Mountain Sirens all had other things happening in music when they came together in 2019. They started, like a lot of bands, covering other artists' songs in local bars. It was like, oh God, I just felt like selling your souls for a while. But with the pandemic, guitarist Amy Jacob Oliver, bassist Ashley Rose, and drummer Eliza Hill committed to writing and moving forward with their own songs. And with the return of live shows, the Sirens have become one of Asheville's most talked-about newer bands. They filled the parking lot last Friday for an outdoor show at Fleetwoods. With Oliver and Rose sharing lead vocals, the sirens are reminiscent of the Riot Girl sounds of Sleater Kinney. Oliver said she feels more inclined to write socially charged lyrics for the sirens than she does in the more established surf punk band she plays in called Harriers of Discord, in which she is the only woman. I try really hard not to single myself out as like a woman. I try not to sexualize myself, but I really want to have a voice for people that are growing up. And I just see a lot of people kind of trampling over women trying to speak out. And we're not done with that fight yet. And I want to be a part of it. For Rose, who has performed alone as a singer-songwriter since her teens, living out her alter ego through the Smoky Mountain Sirens is both a long-held dream and one she held herself back from. The whole reason I wanted to start a band and do all that is because I was playing acoustic covers, like request-based stuff, for almost 17 years, and I, I was just burnt out. Always wanted to be in like a really intense, fun band where I can relate to everything and write what I want to write and play what I want to play, and I never had that. Hill played drums for 10 years in the Asheville funk rock band Andrew Scotchy and the River Rats. She first formed the Smoky Mountain Sirens with Rose, who knew Oliver from working together at a local musical instrument store. Amy wrote a bunch of cool, like, anthemic punk songs about conversations that we've all had and experiences that we've all had and issues that we all share, and we all liked it and identified with it. Get moving before you start losing 
As it happens so often in Nashville's music scene, each member of the trio is actively involved in other musical projects, including another band they're all part of called Bombay Gasoline. But in their quick life as the Smoky Mountain Sirens, they see an avenue for their future they haven't otherwise experienced. We all have a we lot did. in common, but we're all really different. Really different. It actually took a lot of work. Yeah. Like, we've actually gone through a lot as a band, like, personally, socially, musically, to, like, yeah. get to the point where we are now, and I consider us in a place of, like, still building that. Smoky Mountain Sirens hope to spend time in a studio and have some music out to the masses by the end of the year. I'm Matt Pikin, BPR News. For our final story, we're going to stay in western North Carolina. Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle is a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee in North Carolina. In late 2020, she published her first novel called Even As We Breathe. It's a mystery of sorts, set at an upscale mountain resort, and as great books always do, it calls us to think hard about the world around us. NPR's Netta Ulibi visited Glapsidle near Cherokee, North Carolina. The Kuala Boundary is not technically a reservation, but everyone around here calls it one. Its main town, Cherokee, brings in tourists with a casino, moccasin stores, and an old-fashioned gift shop owned by the family of Annette Bird Sanuk Clapsaddle. She grew up helping out, selling stuff like t-shirts, dream catchers, and wind chimes. Definitely my first job. Been a lot of times behind that counter right there. Clapsaddle has short auburn hair, dimples to die for, and gem-like blue eyes. On one side, she's white Appalachian, on the other, Cherokee. Her ancestors escaped the Indian Removal Act of 1830. About a hundred years later, her grandfather decided to start a business. And he built a trading post just down here. And this is actually the entrance to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. As a kid, Clapsaddle would swim in the Oconalefti River and explore the red maple yellow birch forests. Then off she went to Yale University in grad school and worked as a tribal preservationist. Clapsaddle's novel is set during World War II. It's called Even As We Breathe. It's, you know, bizarre to have a book called Even As We Breathe when we're now making sure we don't breathe on anyone. (laughs) Clapsaddle obviously wrote her book pre-COVID. It takes place at a fancy North Carolina resort turned detention camp for valuable prisoners of war. Her main character works there as a groundskeeper. He's a teenage boy from the reservation named County. County is accused of being involved in the disappearance of a diplomat's daughter. So he moves back and forth from Cherokee trying to prove his innocence and also unravel his uh, pretty complicated family history. Even as we breathe, brims with nuances specific to this history, this place, and this tribe. From the smell of pine sap and sourwood, to the hymns sung in Cherokee at the Reservation Methodist Church. Une nala eueji iga guya ona. That's the first part of it. I grew up in a Methodist church on the Kuala Boundary, and that is one of the songs that we sung every Sunday. That is the song that, when I die, will need to be sung at my funeral. Clapsaddle's grandmother taught her that hymn. 
For the past 10 years, she's taught English and Cherokee studies at a local high school that's 30% native. With this novel, Clapsaddle was determined to write characters her high school students might know in real life. Students like Colby Taylor. I was very, very happy to read something that I could identify with almost completely. Taylor is now a freshman at the Honors College at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he loves authors like Ralph Ellison and Sherman Alexie. When he read Even As We Breathe, Taylor was amazed to find himself immersed in such specific details of Cherokee culture. We were a matriarch society, so like we would get our clans from our mothers. We would get our last names from our mothers. They're special. These are special things. For me, that's it. That's what I set out to do, is to give my students a story. Annette Bird's new clapsaddle was incredibly moved, she said, by a text Colby Taylor sent after reading her novel. He said, people just don't write about people like us. And I didn't expect to get choked up on that one. That review is Annette Bird's new clapsaddle's favorite. It means even more to her than the review from Publishers Weekly that called her book a lush debut, an astonishing addition to World War II and Native American literature that sings on every level. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. That story originally aired on NPR's All Things Considered last November. Here's Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle, reading the opening of her novel, Even As We Breathe. It's from the perspective of the main character, a 20-year-old man who leaves his home on the Kuala boundary in the 1940s to find summer work at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville. About the place, when I take you there or when you find it on your own, just know that what the old folks say is true. This land is ours because of what is buried in the ground, not what words appear on a paper. But also know this, what is buried in the ground isn't always what you think. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning of the story, the beginning of all of us who call ourselves homo sapiens. Fitting, I guess, that what I found buried, just as I was trying to figure out how to become a man and still be human, was the very thing that threatened to take it all away. Just when I began to see what taking control of our own life might look like, I realized I was not who I thought, and neither was this place. That summer in 1942, when I met her, really met her, before I found myself in a white man's cage and entangled in the barbed wire that destroyed my father, I left the cage of my home in Cherokee, North Carolina. I left these mountains that both hold and suffocate and went to work at the pinnacle of luxury and privilege, Asheville's Grove Park Inn and Resort. I guess I had convinced myself that I could become fortunate by proximity, escape Uncle Bud's tirades and my grandmother Leishy's empty kitchen cabinets just by driving a couple of hours up the road. It sounded good to tell folks I was raising money for college, but the truth was I didn't know what I was doing. I just didn't want to do it there anymore. And if I stayed any longer, I would become rooted so deeply, I might as well have been buried. That's Annette Sinook Clapsaddle, reading from her novel, Even As We Breathe. We've heard stories today from people using creative pursuits to process their lived experiences in the world around them. In some cases, like with Annette Sinook Clapsaddle, it's about bringing to light your family and community stories. Or like with John R. Miller, who sings about hard decisions and the toll that life can take. Or Susie Kelly, 
making zines to mark the passage of time and the evolution of her own art. And in the New River Gorge, we saw how a motivated group of rock climbers could make change so that landmarks and climbing routes aren't remembered by hurtful names anymore. I hope you're finding creative ways to make good sense of life in your world. For me, I've got a couple zines in mind. Maybe see you at the next zine fest in Johnson City. I'm Mason Adams. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from WVTF Radio IQ in Roanoke, Virginia, Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, and WITF Transforming Health in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by John R. Miller, The Smoky Mountain Sirens, West Swing, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.